love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hey, we are ready to take care of business today. You know, business takes application in many, many different forms. I never cease to be amazed at the kind of things that people take and turn them into businesses. We're going to hear about a lot of those ideas today. I met yesterday with one of the 48days.net members who is launching a new business yet this week. And you'll be hearing about that, but um, one of those hot, hot, hot ideas where he jumped on the bandwagon, put together the concept Um, did an initial valuation of a couple million dollars just because of the idea, had many people put money in, and over the course of about 10 days, increased the valuation dramatically. And uh, that uh, caused another big chunk of money to be put in. Anyway, just uh, exciting to see how ideas can be launched and put together. And I'll be telling you more details about that in the next couple of days, that particular idea. But a lot of people have ideas. A lot of people are wondering about how to get ahead. Here's some of the things we're going to be covering in today's podcast. Dan, how does one get over the stigma of being a convicted felon? Another one says, do I need an ISBN? The number, that barcode number that goes back of a, on the back of a book For a self-published book, should I use my own name in my business name or something else? How can I get an interesting job without a college degree? Hey, there's a question we could spend all day on. How do I stay motivated to do anything worthwhile when I'm in a job I hate? And Dan, why is running your own business such a difficult concept for the working class to grasp? Well, we're going to be talking about those and more here just as rapid fire as we can. This is the time each week where we kind of step back, take a deep breath, take 48 minutes to examine our the value of the work that we're doing. You know, we all know that work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck, but our best opportunity to live out our calling and to create the legacy we want to leave behind. Now, we're doing a whole lot of things coming up here at the sanctuary. We're going to be announcing an open house that we're going to be holding here on, I think it's December 11th. So if you're listening to this after that, it's probably after the fact. But if you catch it ahead of time, December 11th, we're going to have an open house. Going to be doing some exciting things here. Again, this has to do primarily with the great creative ideas of my daughter Ashley, Nathan, and some of the people around here who put together wonderful ideas on things that we can be doing. But we're going to be giving away some prizes, going to be awarding somebody who comes on that day registration at one of the live events coming up this next year. We're having people register. I mean, we're having people register for events in October and August, September of next year already, this being November as I speak now. I like that. That tells me that people are serious about planning in advance, deciding in advance what kind of year they want to have. By committing to workshops and seminars that far out, it lets me know that you are an advanced planner. And guess what? People who plan are the ones who do get ahead. Got some questions about goals today that I'll be covering as well. But uh, again, if you've got a question, you can shoot it in to askdan at 48days.com or go to the form at 48days.com for the podcast. And it'll just have you fill out a little form there to submit your question as well. If you'd be interested in having me come speak, I'm getting a lot of requests for different things for speak. I, I, the things I love most are speaking and writing. There's no secret about that. And I, I welcome the opportunities to write. 
just was asked to write a feature article for the University of Phoenix magazine. Well, University of Phoenix is the largest university in the world based on the fact that they enroll students all over the world because most of their students are distance learners. But I spoke for them recently at one of their events that they had here in Nashville. But uh, I, I like what they're doing. I think it opens a door to a getting ahead in creative ways for a lot of people who otherwise would feel kind of stuck. But anyway, writing for them, writing for a lot of magazines, I welcome that opportunity as well as speaking, just to speak about the changing work opportunities, how we can take advantage of the changes that are going on rather than feeling victimized by those if you'd like to have me come to speak at your church or community or, or event or company, just uh, shoot a note to speak at 48days.com. Well, let me go right into the questions here. I want to have a, a thorough quote to get us started today. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he had imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. I love the kind of old English sound of that in the way that Thoreau wrote, but I thoroughly believe in the concept. You know, I talked to somebody this week, and she said that she often tells people who uh, come to her for coaching, you know, if you want a better life, start living it. Just start living the life that you want. Now, that's not to just see, make it seem like a walk in the park, but, you know, so often we can actually do that very thing. Just start living the life that you want. Really no obstacles to uh, being a better person, you know, showing more care and giving this time of year, this season, whatever it is that would create a better life for you. Just go ahead and start living it. Don't wait on circumstances to line up. Well, this comes from Michael Jones. Now, Michael has been real active on 48days.net, and I'm really going to kind of frame his question by sending it that direction, which he has already done in some ways. But he says, Dan, I'm a loyal, longtime listener, 48days.net member. I mentioned that I have one of your original 48 Days Three Ring Binder Notebooks. Boy, that goes back a few years. I have some exciting news. I just developed and released my first iPhone app. It's called My WDW Tips. And it's an informational app with 333 tips for enjoying Disney World in Florida more with general tips and specific things that are often overlooked to do and see in the park. Now, he's got a link there, but I'm going to just uh, have you, if you're interested in seeing what Michael is doing, go to his questions at 48days.net. He says you can search in iTunes for my and I'm sure it's Walt Disney World, WDW Tips, My WDW Tips or Disney Tips. The app is $1.99. And um, he says he plans on promoting it through press releases, Facebook, email articles, through his site, other sites, word of mouth. What suggestions do I have on how else I can market an iPhone, iPhone app? Michael Jones from Alabama. Well, Michael, I know that you have uh, posted several questions, forum questions, on 48days.net. And believe me, the wealth of brain power that we have there regarding technology is going to far outweigh what I can give you in a quick 30-second response here. But doing that is exactly what I would recommend. When you have an iPhone app and you want to know ideas about how you can market it more effectively, uh, just go there. Go to 48days.net, and I see you've done that and are getting some great feedback from the members there. Incidentally, if you're listening you're not a member of 48days.net, I mean, there's no cost to be a member, no obligation. It's interesting to me 
that so many people look at it. They go there and look at things without ever registering themselves. Now, I know sometimes you may be concerned, gee, your boss is going to find out that you're in a community of entrepreneurs and give them the idea that you are considering ideas of your own. Yeah, I'm sure that's a factor for a handful of people. But most people jump in there and experience the value that they're given in terms of being able to offer and receive advice about how to build their ideas quickly. And a lot of the people that I profile on 48days.net are people who have used the resources there and have launched their ideas, gotten their books published, you know, gotten their ideas up and running, whatever it is that they're doing, but have done that much quicker because of the help from the community that they're getting there. Again, we're not looking to grow that community just numerically. It really doesn't matter. I mean, if we have 500 people who are committed there and good things are happening for them, hey, I'm a happy camper. Now, we're approaching, I think, about 8,000 at this particular time, and that's an okay number too. But there's nothing special about any particular number, whether it's, again, 500 or 50,000. But the point is, is it working? And that's what thrills me to see is that, yes, it is working to help people. Now, Michael continues, he sent me another email after this first one, said that as a result of doing the app and showing on 48days.net what he's done, he's having all kinds of people now asking if he would consult with them on mobile app development. Is becoming a 48days coach for mobile app development a good side business, and do you think it has potential? Absolutely, I do think it has potential. I mean, I don't know how many times a week I'm approached with people who say, gee, we need to develop a 48 Days app, or gee, Dan, I want to develop this app. I mean, that's, that's one of those really hot technology areas right now where, sure, a whole lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon, but it has such a low bar of entry now, I don't mean you can just be a numbnut and do it. You have to have some sophistication to do it. But in terms of having to create a company and financial input that you need and all that, that has been almost almost disappeared I mean, because you can get an app up and running. Now, the key is then, how are you going to market it? And is it something that people actually want? But if you have an app like Michael does for $1.99 and you get half a million people that go in there and purchase that, that turns into a nice chunk of change. I love the concept, love everything about it. So do I think that there's a good business potential there for somebody to be a, a iPhone app developer and marketing expert and coach? Absolutely. And the fact that you have done it successfully, I mean, is, is all the credentials you want. Now, we've got questions today from some people who ask about, you know, college degrees, gee, I can't get any kind of opportunity without a college degree. Well, in this, now you can go check out Michael's material. I have no idea if he has a PhD from Vanderbilt or Harvard, or if he's a eighth grade dropout. But you know, people don't really ask that when they see that you've developed an iPhone app. They're not going to say, gee, what's your background academically? What credentials do you have for being a coach or me paying you money to help me in this area? No, they say, wow, you've done something really cool. If you can help me do that, I want you to coach me how to do it and I'll pay you to do it. So we've got to get out of this mindset that the world is waiting until you get a degree to take you seriously. No, do something significant and they'll take you seriously immediately, today. Well, let me move on. Misty says, I am a felon. 
I've never been in trouble before, and what I got in trouble for was not of my character, but now I've been labeled for the rest of my life, and I feel I will never get another good job. I feel stuck in the dead-end job that I hate. Now, Misty, this is something near and dear to my heart, because my wife, Joanne, works with a lot of the ladies coming out of the Tennessee Prison for Women here in Nashville, Tennessee. She has a real heart for them, and we know the challenges that they face. And you're exactly right. You come out, and and some of the situations that put people in prison where they actually are convicted of a felony is are just ludicrous. I mean, it's amazing. But, I mean, people without good legal representation can end up there for taking a quarter out of a payphone, I think. So, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who have felons on their record, and you're right. I mean, nobody will rent a house to you. Nobody will sell you a car. Nobody will give you a job. It's really difficult. Again, what's often required and what we recommend is that you move out of the old traditional system where people are going to do background checks. And, you know, that shows up. And so they won't hire you to be a greeter at Walmart. Well, what connection does that have if you're going to stand there and you know smile and make people feel welcome? We think there are a lot of opportunities for people that legitimately could be filled with people who do have felons on their records. Plug into the organizations in your community. Now, you're in Texas, so I'm not as familiar there, but I'm sure there are things. Here locally, we have organizations like Leaving the Cocoon, uh, The Next Door, Welcoming Home. I mean, we have a bunch of organizations that work with people like you to help them find the opportunities that are out there. There are companies like my friend Tom Zaki, who has, oh my gosh, I can't bring the name. He he makes worm poop. I mean, he processes worm poop and turns it into fur. TerraCycle. TerraCycle is the name of the company. He says he has a, a, the market cornered on world, worm poop, but that's what his company does. But he has big manufacturing operations, and he opened a, a plant in the roughest section of the, the worst part of New Jersey, and he will hire anybody. He does not care about background checks, but you get one chance. So if you're a felon and you come in and you work there for five years and make a lot of money and move up in advance, but that's perfectly fine. Now, you and everybody else, doesn't matter if you've got a college degree and a clean record, you come there and you screw up, you're out. So it really is connected to what you're able to perform. And more and more companies are looking at it like that. You know, ask around, ask organizations that are working with people coming out of the prison system in your area, who is hiring who, there are some companies that specifically give opportunities to people who have felonies because they know that those people don't have as many options. They aren't as likely to jump ship. So I'm sure there are some there in your area as well. I have been asked by my publisher to write an addendum to 48 Days for the recently released you know, prison inmate. We haven't decided on a title, but essentially that. You know, because there are some very specific things that you can do having a felony on your record and move ahead, hold your head high and not be held back by these seeming restrictions. Steve says, Dan, I'm an avid follower of your work. I'm working through the 48 days process trying to make a complete change in my career. I'm going back to school for my business degree and hope to make a new start in the training and development area. 
my question is this, when can I begin the 48 days process when I'm still learning about this industry? I don't think I need my entire degree, which I expect to finish in about nine to 12 months to apply for positions. But I also doubt that I can compete with others who have their degree and experience in the field. At this point, I lack both. Do I need to wait until I get my degree or just go for it now? How will I catch an employer's attention? without the degree or experience. Well, I agree. It's going to be a little difficult to make yourself a serious candidate without a degree or experience. So move quickly to get one or both of those under your belt. But you can have experience in training because, I mean, I I went through the Dale Carnegie Human Relations Program years and years ago. I was so impacted by the power of the program, and I highly recommend it, incidentally, that I volunteered to help in upcoming classes. And the guy says, my goodness, y'all make you my teaching assistant. And so I worked with him in taking lots of, at the time we were taking lots of General Motors employees who worked at the Corvette plant in Bowling Green, Kentucky, through the program, the Dale Carnegie program. So I was the teaching assistant in the Dale Carnegie program. I mean, that's going to carry a lot of weight in terms of training and development. That has nothing to do with getting a degree, and that's something you can do very, very quickly. Uh, My friend Pierce Mars has done exactly that. I got involved in the Dale Dale Carnegie program and is working as a teaching assistant. That's opening up all kinds of doors for him for speaking and training in major companies, as he was sharing this just this week about an opportunity that he's had with a company for training. So, yeah, get something, but no, you don't have to wait for your degree, but the fact that you're working on it will work in your favor, but uh, don't get stuck waiting for that particular event. Just get out there and start now, but do things, you know, volunteer for training that's going on in your current company to help in the leadership of that, and it'll give you the credentials that you need pretty quickly. Tracy says, my spiral-bound journals are selling well at conventions and on Facebook. Do I need to have an ISBN for this by December 10th delivery, or can I just wait a bit longer to see if there are further changes that need to be made? When did you get your ISBN for your three-ring binder? Now, the ISBN is that number. It comes in both a numerical number, it's 13 digits, and it also is a barcode that you see at the bottom on the back cover of any book that you buy in a bookstore. It's a tracking number, and once you register a book with that number, then anybody in the world can find it. And they'll find out, even if it's not available in a bookstore, that somebody can walk into a Barnes & Noble, ask for a particular title. If you have an ISBN, it's easy to find where that's being published, even if that is just you doing the publishing. So yeah, it's an important tracking number. Um, at the same time, depending on how you're going to sell your things, if you're selling your journal at conventions, back of the room, at things when you speak, or at uh, on Facebook, even like eBay and like that, an ISBN isn't really that important. More than anything, it kind of shows credibility because it puts you in the same ranks as a well-known publisher. It, it kind of marks that this is a serious product. This isn't something that somebody just threw together on a Saturday afternoon. So I think it serves you well in that regard. Now, you can get your own ISBN numbers. I think you have to get them in box of 10, but they're not very expensive. And there's only really one good place to get those, and that's through the Bowker Company, R.R. Bowker, B-O-W-K-E-R. But you can access that just by going to ISBN.org. That's the website. I'm sure that's at ISBN.org. Just go there, and you'll see how to get those. And then you can get 
the little graphic with the barcode done. I think that's like 25 bucks. We just did one for Joanne's newest children's book, but we did that ourselves and it's something you can do yourself. At the other, on the other side of this story though, that your question is, do you need that before you start selling product? No, you can go ahead and sell product. Now, the other part of your question though implies that once you get the ISBN, that then you lock in concrete the content. That's not true either. You can go ahead and get an ISBN sell your books and you're doing it in a three ring binder you can continue to make modifications and changes in that it's not really a big deal just go ahead and make it what you want it to be as you go along but an ISPN will make it easy to track so that whatever version of that you have you can still have people being directed to you and incidentally the kind of rule of thumb is that I mean if I write a book if I write um well, well, a good example is 48 Days to the Work You Love. 48 Days to the Work You Love first came out in a published form with that ISBN. Now, I had an ISBN for my three-ring binder in the years leading up to 2005, but then it was done by Broadman Holman Publishing, so they created an ISBN for it, and that came out in 2005. In 2010, I did an update, but that keeps the same ISBN. It's the same ISBN that directs you to that book today as it was in 2005. So what that means is if I do more than 30% revision, then it really kind of um, should, you should get a new ISBN, more than 30% revision. But that as you know, allows for a whole lot of leeway there in doing revisions and updates if you can go up to 30% and keep the same ISBN. Randy says, I own a Christmas caroling company that provides semi-professional singers for parties and corporate events, complete with Victorian period costumes and British accents. Golly, how cool. Uh, Randy says, I've written a book about starting your own Christmas caroling company for profit or ministry with sample videos and music, but I'm not sure how to go about releasing it to potential buyers. Any suggestions? Yeah, do just like, uh, do just like, who was it, to just ask the question where she has a three-ring binder, uh, Tracy. I mean, I'm a big believer in doing that. Put it together as an instructional manual in a three-ring binder. It has a high perceived value because it's a big piece of physical product. I mean, it has what we call thump value. It, ha- it makes a big sound if you drop it on the floor. That has a lot to do with how we price things, incidentally. So, yeah, I'd go ahead, put it together like that, and then just get it out there. You can get it out there on eBay or on Amazon. You can get right into Amazon. They welcome people like you. That gives you a lot of exposure. But then you do you know, the blogs and commenting or newsletter or podcast. You do all those things to let people know about that. Go to other blogs that are writing about Christmas oriented issues comment on those give your website you have to be careful that you don't just blatantly make it a sales kind of promotion but you can do that as you blog on other people's information to let them know that there is a product available to let them know how to start their own christmas caroling company i mean what a cool concept i mean that's a great idea and you say that you are going to show people how to do it either for profit or for ministry which is covers all the bases i I like your idea wish you well with that Alan says, I started a wedding photography business on the side. I'm stuck with coming up with a business name. Should I use my name, you know, like Joe Smith Photography or Dan Miller Photography or something original like Life's Moments Photography? What's your take? Great question. 
my personal take, now, now this, I'm going to have to frame this a couple different ways, because when it comes to art or something creative like photography, you may want to build your own name brand. So it becomes, you know, the guy who did, who's the painter of lights, can't remember his name, Thomas uh, Kincaid, Thomas Kincaid. You know, so if you want to build your own brand, then yeah, you're going to want to have your own name in the business. The other side of that is, usually that implies a smaller business, if it just is a person's name. So we know that Joe Smith Photography is Joe Smith. We don't expect that to be an organization with 40 people working where they show up at schools to take pictures of the kids. I mean, that's Owen Mills. I mean, you recognize Owen Mills. That's probably a bigger photography organization than Joe Smith Photography. So it implies smallness. Now, that can also imply a personalization that you're not likely to get from a bigger company. My personal preference, though, on business names is that it is not the owner's name. I mean, if, if you have your name, if I have Dan Miller Honda sales, what happens if that grows and is really successful and I want to pass it on to my kids or I want to sell the business to Joe Smith, you know, from Paducah, Kentucky, and now it's got Dan Miller Honda sales. I mean, how do you transition a business well when it is so closely linked to the owner? I have chosen in business names to not have my name there. And we've had these discussions. You know, my kids have pushed for me to, to make it Dan Miller everything, to build a personal brand rather than a business name. And I've chosen to do 48 days. I mean, that has worked pretty well, but that means that I can step out of the forefront at any given time. Or, I mean, think about a business. There was a business that just sold this week, Groupon. It probably have been bombarded with coupons from Groupon every day. You get some kind of a daily deal and it's going to have, you know, your local restaurant where you get $40 worth of food for $20. Well, that business grew dramatically. A little more than two years, two years old, and was just sold this week to Google for $2.5 billion. That's rapid growth. If Groupon, Groupon describes, you know, it's a group phenomenon and it's a coupon. Groupon, it's a great name. But if that had been Joe Smith coupons, it would likely not have had the value that it did under the name Groupon. So I would encourage you, unless you just want to build a small business and have it be very, have it be just you, always you, nothing but you, I would encourage you to not use your name, but to come up with something else like you already suggested, like Life's Moments Photography. Sounds good to me. This comes in, Dan, I'm a 21-year-old female and don't have any direction in my life. All the jobs that sound interesting require a bachelor's degree, but I haven't even started on my associate's degree since I don't have money to pay for school. I didn't do well in high school, but somehow received a diploma with the bare minimum. Advice appreciated. Well, here's my advice. Don't wait on getting a degree to find work that is interesting or to find your direction in life. Being in college rarely is the determining factor for helping somebody find direction in life. 
It's being engaged in life that helps us find direction and clarify our passions. And I, I, I know you, you took a broad swipe here when you say all the jobs that sound interesting require a bachelor's degree. I know all kinds of jobs. I mean, the most interesting people I meet, the jobs they have don't require a particular kind of degree. They require a particular kind of person who knows what they're doing and is doing something significant, exciting, important, whatever how you want to phrase it, but all of those things. But very rarely is it based on, do you have to have a particular degree? I mean, this morning I was with Dave Ramsey in our early morning group, and we were talking about the new positions that he has available. I mean, trust me, I mean, he does not have a position. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm pretty confident in saying there's not a position in his organization in which you have to have a particular bachelor's degree to be a candidate. I mean, I, they just don't look at it like that. They want to know what are you doing? What do you contribute? What are you interested in? What are your skills, talents, contributions? I mean, that. So figure out what you're interested in, what the direction for your life needs to be. And that's going to come by looking at what are your skills and abilities? What are your personality tendencies? I mean, how do you relate to other people? What kind of environments are you most comfortable in? What are those recurring dreams or passions that you have? I mean, you ought to be able to recognize those, and those come from just life. Those don't come from sitting in a classroom. They come from life. Then once you discover what's your passion, what's your purpose, what's your mission, destiny is going to be, your direction in life, then you can ask, is it necessary for me to have a particular degree to pursue that or not? Do I just need to go on? Now, there's another clue in what you write here that is pretty glaring red flag, and that is, I didn't do well in high school, but somehow received a diploma with a bare minimum. If you didn't do well in high school, why do you want to beat yourself up by now going for a bachelor's degree? I mean, it's likely to be more of the same. The experience you had in high school where it was very difficult and you just kind of scraped through and they felt sorry for you and gave you a piece of paper, I mean, uh, I'm not sure that's a legitimate place for you to be. Now, I say this, this has very little to do with IQ, EQ, all the things we consider important, intelligent quotient, emotional quotient, I mean, those kind of things. I mean, my own son, who you hear me talk about repeatedly Jared who's 32 years old had a great deal of difficulty in high school we homeschooled him so he would have some semblance of a high school degree but he wasn't going to do well in a classroom and there is no way in the world that we would encourage him to go on to college to get a degree it would be a frustrating experience for him to sit through there that's not how his mind thinks but give him a challenge give him an opportunity you know, to change the world, he's going to be the first one to step up at the plate and show that it can be done. I mean, he's doing amazing things because he has discovered his passion for helping the underprivileged and coming up with creative microenterprises to help them generate income, not so that they become the recipients of care or sympathy or handouts or foreign aid, but that people really become equipped to provide for themselves in creative ways that they never considered before. I mean, that's his gift. You probably have the same kind of gifts, and those aren't going to line up well 
with academic degrees. There are too many red flags in what you're talking about here. But the main thing is don't wait. Don't think that there's somehow a closed door there that you can't find your direction. You can't find something that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable even with the skills that you bring to the table now. Now, I know that's kind of a generic, and I don't know your situation at all, but certainly I hope that you at least get a hold of 48 Days to the Work You Love because it'll help you go through and identify what you're talking about and put you on track and give you the confidence that a college degree may not be a part of where you're going at all. Sharon says, Hi, Dan. My DISC profile is Logical Thinker. The list of suggested careers is quite long. How do I marry my profile results with the career suggestions and make sure my passions are addressed? I like the more creative side of things like decorating, floral arranging, and packaging. My logical thinker seems to be at odds with the right brain pleasures. Interesting. Interesting that you would position it in that way. Now, what what we're showing... And logical thinker, you probably have high elevation in perhaps the D, the dominance, and C. Both of those are very fact-oriented, task, project-focused, rather than people. And they're considered to be much more logical, detailed, analytical than the other two, which are much more kind of touchy-feely, people relationship-oriented, and so on. But you don't have to think that because you're drawn to things like decorating, floral arranging, and packaging, that those will not embrace your logical skills. I mean, when you, we tend to think that creative activity, you know, means that something's sloppy or unorganized. You know, artists are just all over the board. They don't know how to, you know, organize. Well, that's not true. I mean, look at some art. I mean, some of art is so mathematically laid out. I mean, look at the works of Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, the guy was an amazing inventor. And his art is very detailed, very proportionate, very mathematical and calculated. And I see a lot of artists who are like that. I mean, decorating, floral arranging, the other things you mentioned certainly can embrace that as well, to do things with precision. So you can embrace those two. You can marry those two. I mean, stay true to your passions, even if it defies what the disc is telling you about being logical. If you find that you do have the ability to go outside that. I mean, when I think about the gal who did the tree carving for me here, carved Aristotle, the eagle, and the big cedar tree that we have in the approach to my office, I mean, she came out of a background in terms of academically and work experience that was very detailed, very engineering-oriented. That's how she approaches things. She's a wood sculptor. But if you look at the sculpting that she does, I mean, come out and see Aristotle here, the tree in my property, you'll see how proportionate it is. I mean, if I did something like that, my gosh, one wing would, you know, outsize the other one by two thirds and the nose would be where the belly button ought to be. You know, she does things. She's very calculated in how she approaches it. She sketches it out. She knows what the proportions ought to be so that it comes out looking like something that really could be an animate object. So, yes, you can marry those two. Got a great question. Dan, I've got a um, question for you on achieving goals. This comes from Rob. I followed your recommendations and have listed out my goals using your Power of Goals worksheet. My question is about how to best review my goals to achieve them. How often should I be revisiting my goals and what questions should I be asking besides have I achieved it and am I on the right track? 
Also, would you mind sharing some of your goals with the audience? As always, thank you, Rob. Yeah, there are, there are a couple ways to approach this. I mean, I love the process of setting goals, and I know that not everybody does. But again, I'm totally convinced that if you can write something down and really put a timetable to it, it will change your level of success instantaneously. I mean, I've seen it confirmed time and time again. Now, what I mean by that is, yes, you do have to have a timetable. Now, there's a difference between dreams and goals. Everybody has dreams. Everybody's dreaming of being on American Idol or being the next Bill Gates or getting on Oprah's show. That's a dream. That becomes a goal if you have a plan and a timetable connected to it. So without a plan, you don't have goals. Without a timetable, you don't have goals. Without a timetable, you don't have goals. All you have is just a dream. So, in that, thus is my question. Do you have goals or do you just have dreams? So, the goals ought to be measurable. They ought to let you know when you are accomplishing them. And I have goals in seven areas, and that's what's laid out in 48 days, and anything you see from me is going to have seven areas identified for goals. Financial, physical, spiritual, family, social, personal development, and career. Now, you'll notice in anything that I do, I put career at the end, which may seem counterintuitive to people who know that I write regarding work and career. That's all I do. That's my area of focus. So why wouldn't I put career first? Because I think career ought to be a reflection of the life that you want rather than the other way around. If you make your life work in around any available holes left outside of your career, you're going to have a mediocre life. If you decide in advance the things that are important to you in terms of physical, spiritual, family, social, personal development, those other areas I mentioned, then you can identify what kind of work is going to allow me to live the kind of life that I say I want to live. And I believe that's how we ought to approach it. So now Zig Ziglar uses seven areas of goals like this as well. And what he recommends is that you have two each week that you bring to the forefront. So this week, it may be physical and spiritual. Those are the ones that you really focus on. Personally, I like to have all seven running in the background at any given time. So I can at any given point in the week or a day look and say, have I made a deposit of success in that particular area in my life? If not, why not? Because I can then be alerted early. If I go five days and I haven't made any deposits of success in the physical area, I'm going to start to suffer the consequences of that. Same thing if I haven't done anything to advance my career, if I haven't done anything to uh, put money in the bank. I mean, all those things are going to suffer pretty quickly. Now, there's another way to look at this, and this is an interesting one. Ben Franklin had 13 primary goals in his life. What he would do is focus on one a week. And with 13, you recognize then that four times a year, each one would come up. So each of the 13 would be his primary focus for one week, twice a year, or four, four times a year. And I like that too. I mean, I'm not a stickler on how you set goals. Do something that works for you. It's just like in the physical area, doing something to keep you in shape. You may enjoy going to the Y, you know, and working out there, you know, and being involved in a, a pickup volleyball game or something. You know, to me, I don't like to waste the time to go to a club where I have to wait on the use of a machine, get caught, you know, talking to somebody for 20 minutes, 
you know, BS and whatever, talking about the football game last Sunday. That's not how I handle my physical wellness. I like to do it where I combine it with the mental, personal development as well, where I'm listening to something or reading something while I'm doing it. That works for me. I don't jog. My knees are horrible. They swell up if I go jogging. To you, jogging or running may be the perfect thing. So this is not a matter of one size fits all or one process for goal setting fits everybody. But make them specific. Make sure that you cover multiple areas. Don't just have goals financially and career. Big deal. I mean, if that's the only areas you excel in in life, again, you're not going to have a life that is that worth living and certainly not one that other people admire and look up to. Rob says, "This now this is a kind of a related question. Rob says, Dan, I'm working toward a no more Monday's life. I have a problem with staying motivated. I spend eight hours a day at the J-O-B that I'm not happy with and then come home and put in a few hours in the business. I'm finding on a day like today that the J-O-B drains my enthusiasm and it's hard to get back up and be motivated to work in my business when I go home. Any suggestions? Yeah, my suggestion, Rob, is that you create a transition. When you say that you're putting in a few hours on your business at home, I mean, I, I want you to be able to see a transition into the business that you're doing, or at least a transition so that the business is giving you significant income and a sense of fulfillment within three to six months, 90 to 180 days. Even when it's a creative entrepreneurial kind of business, that's what I'm going to be looking for. Now, if you're just working in a business on a side and you can't really see that it's ever going to generate any minute money, it's it's not going to keep you motivated. So you've got to have a real tangible plan there and see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. If you do, then your enthusiasm ought to go up on that, even if you come home exhausted from your traditional J-O-B. Now, I'm not saying to quit your J-O-B, just burn a bridge and hope something else works. No, but the quicker that you can see that your side business really is a viable business. It's going to give you time flexibility. It's going to give you income. It's going to create dollars for you while you sleep. I mean, a lot of those things that we look for, as soon as you see that that's a reality there, the quicker you're going to see an exit plan from a job that you don't really enjoy. So this should be a transition. This should not be something that goes on forever where you have a real job, then you come home and you work on your side business a little bit. Nah, I mean, I don't recommend that anybody ends up, you know, putting in 78 hours a week working. So unless the side business has the potential to overtake your traditional job in terms of income, then I would question doing it on an ongoing basis. Unless it's just a hobby and you spend two or three hours a week doing it. But if you really see this as a business, then look for ways to grow the business so you transition out of the J-O-B, especially one that you do not enjoy. Fred says, Dan, I wanted to share with you how my mom has started generating some income doing work she loves, woodworking. For years, she has made wooden treasure chests like pirates use out of wood she recycles from a cabinet shop. She got the idea about a treasure chest in from looking at little one in my brother's fish tank. For the last 10 years, I've been telling her she needs to be selling them. They come in all sizes from jewelry box size to large size. Well, in September, she sold her first one through Etsy, E-T-S-Y, which is an easy site at ETSY.com where you can go on there and put on artistic things and people will see them and they sell there. You don't have to build a website, do anything. It's real easy. Great place. And they says she's told us, sold a total of 10 so far. I'm totally blown away with excitement for her. 
She has no computer um, or website. A friend of hers posted a blog about them, put them up. What suggestions do you have for helping your retired parents turn a hobby into something that generates income? Well, and, and Fred also says that he posted a blog about it on 48days.net, which is a great way to do that, to get advice. I went to the site. The little treasure chest your mom is making are absolutely incredible. They're phenomenal. I mean, I love them. Um, I mean, I, I want to go back and spend a little more time there. You know, I could see having one here in my desk. I mean, they're really great. And what you can do is exactly what your friend did for your mom. Help her with the marketing side of things. Don't make it complicated by making your mom think that she has to, you know, become computer savvy and she has to be, you know, flipping things up on eBay. Just put something in place to help her with that. Allow her to make those little treasure chests that she obviously enjoys doing. But then help her with an outlet. For those where it is profitable, where she can enjoy the thrill of having things that other people want and things that are selling and, and things that are creating income for. Because frankly, with the quality that I saw in just a quick scan of those little treasure chests, yeah, those things ought to create significant income for. There's a real artistic process there. This is not just a little box somebody put together. This is a treasure chest, and I think people will view it as such. But yeah, just help her with the marketing side, how she needs to do that. Let me, uh, let me just grab one more here. Russell from Lynchburg, Tennessee says, Lynchburg, Lynchburg, Tennessee. You know, that's not that far from me here in Franklin. That's where Jack Daniels Distillery is. And it, it's funny, Jack Daniels Distillery is in a dry county, so they can't sell what they make there, but uh, they have an amazing processing plant. And, it, and it's worth going through just as a tourist, no matter what your feelings are about what they produce. But it's just a great business story and a, a really quaint little town, Lynchburg, Tennessee. Anyway, I digress. Let me get back to the question quickly. Thanks, Dan. Your insights always get my creative juices flowing. What do you think about the concept of running your own business, doing work you love, controlling your own destiny? Why is it such a difficult concept for the working class to understand and aspire to? P.S. Thanks to Dave Ramsey. I'm living like no one else pursuing my dreams. Well, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, I I promote a lot of principles for helping people put legs on their own ideas, for making those little treasure chests, or for mowing yards, or washing windows, or starting the next Groupon, or whatever it happens to be. I mean, I I think the potential there is just uh, just mind-boggling. And when I see people who are skilled, talented people, and they're simply trading their time for a paycheck, you know, it really makes me wonder too, you know, why have they gotten locked into that? Do they really think it's impossible? Do they just doubt their own abilities that much? I mean, there's so many ways to test your ideas, your abilities, even without risking what you may have in a current job. And again, do I think that everybody ought to be an entrepreneur? No, not at all. There's a whole lot of people I recommend you need to polish your resume and go get a job. That has a lot to do with other factors, typically. That may be lack of spousal support, um, a really low point in time where somebody is just absolutely without dollars at all. I usually recommend, let's just get you a job to get you started, get you back in the game, build yourself confidence a little bit, then you can go on to something else. But ultimately, I do think that if somebody has the ability to start and run their own business and doesn't do it, that they're foolish. 
that they'll live to regret it. I mean, I, I never hear somebody who started their own business and really got rocking and rolling where they say, oh, I wish I would have waited another five years to start. No, it's never like that. It's, it's, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? You know, why didn't I do this 15 years ago? I had the idea then. I just never acted on it. That's what I hear. Now, there comes with that, though, the assumption that somebody's ready to accept personal responsibility. It's uh, a whole lot easier to hide out in a J-O-B and assume it's somebody else's responsibility at the end of the day than it is to take over, put yourself in the driver's seat where you're responsible for hiring, firing, training, you know, inventory control, selling, marketing, I mean, all those things. I mean, you have to have a plan for all those. And for some people, that's just too complicated. It's easier just to go do one thing in a company and get a paycheck. Again, nothing wrong with that. But why is it so difficult? I think for a whole lot of people, just assuming personal responsibility is just too big of a leap. Not going to go there. Well, hey, we are out of time already. Let me give you just a couple of reminders here. You know, jump on 48days.net. See what people are doing there. You'll be amazed at how people are developing ideas there and getting their own plan rocking and rolling. Keep in mind the, the upcoming events that we've got here. Coaching with Excellence coming up. If you want to be a coach in any particular area, if you want to help people develop an iPhone app, Hey, come to the Coaching with Excellence event. We'll help you figure out how to put legs on that, shape it so that you create significant income in doing that. Of course, our Write to the Bank, one of our most popular seminars. If you want to turn your writing into income, how do you do that? We've got four of those scheduled for next year. Got some of those filling up already. If you want to jump in one of those, join us there. Just go to live events at the sanctuary. Also, check out the cruise we gotta i'd love to see on the cruise we're having a lot of fun planning the last minute details on that that's going to be in february right over valentine's day but join us on that cruise hey about talk to music have a great week planning or creating the work that you love